Your property podcast comes to you with thanks to our friends at Trafalgar Square Finance, leading independent specialists in mortgages and all types of property finance. Whether it's buy-to-let, development or bridging finance, Trafalgar Square can help you organise your funding for your next property project. Exclusively to listeners of Your Property Podcast, Trafalgar Square offer a free one-to-one consultation. So whether you are a portfolio landlord looking to raise funds on your existing portfolio, or if you're just starting out and want to find out if you are eligible for a buy-to-let mortgage, Trafalgar Square Finance can help. It's easy to book with one of their experienced consultants by simply visiting yourpropertynetwork.co.uk forward slash finance. You can find this link in the show notes for more details. Hello and welcome to Your Property Podcast. My name is Michelle Cairns and with us today we've got Mark Poole. Hi Mark. Hi Michelle, how are you? Oh great, thank you. We had you on, well it's probably a few years ago now, um, just thinking on the podcast and it was a really popular podcast you were talking about how um you know because you're a mathematician by your background and uh and how people can kind of work out the numbers on a deal and I know that's something that a lot of people do struggle with even if they are um you know okay excel spreadsheets and that kind of thing but actually what you know your method around stacking deals um is you know it has helped a lot of people so Let's just start with a bit about yourself. So just uh, introduce yourself for people who've not heard the last podcast or don't know you before. Sure. So um, I've been a property investor now for about 20 years. Um, I actually decided a long time ago when I was a student that, you know, property was was a good investment because I did the sums on our hovel, uh, you know, that I lived in at the time. And figured out the landlord was, you know, doing rather well, well out of it. And, but, you know, did the usual thing, graduated, did a PhD, finally got a job. And then I bought my first property uh, in London uh, with a view to keeping that and renting it out, which is what I did. So I, I lived in that for about three years. Uh, you know, went to work, earned some money, um, ref- refurbished it. And then I moved on and I kept it. And that, that you know, suddenly I was a landlord. Um, and I've done various things along the way, buy to let, buy to sell, joint ventures, private investor finance, et cetera, et cetera, direct to vendor. Um, yeah, and you kind of get the bug and, you know, the, the, the hardest one is kind of your first one. Um, it's kind of rolled from that. But, you know, it's always been with a view to providing sort of pension options later in life. That's where I think you've got the flexibility of property because you can, you know, take a lump sum. Uh, you can take the income. Uh, you know, you can refinance if you want, you know, that debt is effectively tax-free. It's not, not going to be my strategy, but it gives you lots of lots of options that, that you know, that you can add on top of any other kind of pension investment strategy you've got. So, yeah, I've been investing now for about 20 years. Yeah, a long time. And I, I like how you started that with, well, I got into property because I did the sums. I get a sums job, yeah, there you go. Uh, excuse the pun there. Um, but you know for a lot of people they just become accidental landlords or they are looking to get out of the day job and that's the main driver or they're interested in you know uh, having like service accommodation and making you know uh, or, or interior design for example that's why they got into it but you're definitely you know looking at the spreadsheet and saying okay this makes sense and you've got this unique aspect of looking at the longer term play for some people it's just about getting out of the day job 
and how quickly can they do that? Whereas your approach is slightly different. You're looking at it for longer term from the beginning and either replacing a pension or you know providing a pension if there isn't one available. So uh, let's let's dive into that then, um, because I think it's not something that people generally talk about. There's lots of talk about getting out the day job. Um, but actually, if people can do both and they have the end in mind from the beginning, then that's really useful. And also for people who are at a different stage in their life or their career uh, or just, you know, their property journey and they're looking for, you know, stability and they're looking for um, how they can get that pension pot at the end but quicker, then then let's let's talk about that. So why does it make sense for you to go through property for uh, for your retirement pot? I think it just gives much more options, uh, you know, once you, once you get your knowledge and experience together. So, you know, for me, there's, there's two golden rules. So first thing you can do is buy well. So principally, that means buying at a discount. If you can go to direct to vendor, that's where the best deals are. And that's how I built a lot of my portfolio. So for a start, you can build in a discount and equity from from day one and then my second golden rule is to you know add value so you buy something where you can add value normally through a refurbishment it could be through you know one bed to two bed flat conversion could be you know a garage conversion to create another bedroom downstairs that sort of thing and that's quite unique to property so unlike you know, stocks and shares and so on, property isn't homogeneous, right? If I buy an IBM share, it's an IBM share, you know, and the price is what the price is. And I, I can't get a discount on an IBM share. Um, and I can't add value to an IBM share. Right? If I have no control over IBM at all, right? You know, even if I even if I thought I could run IBM as a CEO, you know, I, I'm not in a position to do that. So, you know, straight away, that's, that's one of the big advantages of property is that it isn't homogeneous. Um, the second biggest advantage, of course, is leverage. So, you know, if you try going into a bank and saying, you know, I want to invest in the stock market, I'm going to make some great stock picks. Um, you know, I've got 25,000. Can you lend me 75,000? So I've got 100,000 to play with. You know, it's just going to laugh you out of the bank, right? Um, whereas that that standard in property investing, um, I can go to a bank and, and get funding for a big chunk of the investment. Um, which is great because obviously that leverages your returns. And secondly, um, you know, which is quite sort of prudent now we're in this kind of high inflation environment is that actually, you know, inflation has got a bad rap at the moment and, and, and rightly so with cost of living crisis, but actually inflation is kind of property investors friend because what it's doing is inflating away the debt. So what's really happening, people talk about capital appreciation, but it's not so much capital appreciation, it's the devaluing of the pound. That's what's happening over the longer term because inflation means that you know, your pound in a year's time is worth less than a pound today. So you need more of them to buy things. And we see that because you know price of olive oil is going up or price of milk's going up. I need more pounds to buy a pint of milk than I did this time last year. And the same is true of property. Um, so you are kind of fixing your debt at a point in time and then fast forward 10, 15, 20 years and that debt has effectively been inflated away. And what might have seemed like quite a large mortgage 20 years ago, you know, and I, I can speak from personal experience on this, what seemed like a big mortgage 20 years ago, you know, seems relatively speaking in today's money peanuts because that money 
simply isn't worth as much anymore. And that that to me is where the real power of property is. So I get that people want to give up their day job and so on. They want to do that quickly. But really, the, for me, that the biggest benefit of property is the capital growth. It's about being in it long enough and, you know, set and forget, just like kind of stock market investing where, it's kind of recognised that you should just invest in index funds and stuff because most actively managed funds don't beat the market and you should just buy over the long term and kind of forget about it and come back in 20 years. I kind of feel that's that's a similar approach I've taken with with property, but, you know, with some turbocharging built in because you can buy well and you can have value from day one. But then, you know, boring is best in in in, in my world. So, you know, I'm predominantly a single let investor. Um, you know, I rent them unfurnished and my wear and tear is low. These days I don't even supply white goods. Um, just a kind of built-in um, oven and hob. So, you know, minimal maintenance, minimum tenant issues. I'm not paying utilities. I'm not paying council tax. Uh, generally doesn't need to be licensed. You know, it's as hands-off an investment as you can get, which is a bit like investing in a stock market fund, right? So, um, you know, boring is best. Um, and that's why I got into property. It just then gives me that flexibility. So I can take some of that income and, you know, you could cut down your working week and do a three-day working week. You could take some of your income and go and do something you're really much more interested in, take a pay cut. As I say, you can sell a property. I've got a lump sum. I could buy a yacht and sell around the world. You know, you've got that flexibility going forward, which is what I really like right. about it. And you say boring is best. How does that impact uh, how risk-averse you are in your deals? Yeah, I think that, well, the thing is with with long-term buy-to-let is um, it's, it's very forgiving. Um so as as long as your numbers basically stack, uh, then it doesn't really matter. You know, if I end up, I, you know, it turned out overpaid by £5,000, for example, or my refurb overran by £5,000, or, you know, I thought I'd get £700 a month rent and actually only get 650 In the long term, that's just trivial, right? Because you fast forward again, 10, 15, 20 years, and the rent's not 700 anymore, it's 1200 And, you know, I didn't pay 150000 for the I paid 150,000 for the property and maybe that was 10,000 too much but now it's worth 250,000 by to let is very forgiving it kind of smooths out any kind of uh you know errors I made at the start so you know am I risk averse I, I I say all property investors need to have an element of of you know needing to take on some risk I mean you've got to accept that if you're looking for a return over and above what you can get in a bank then you are by definition taking on some risk and there are lots of risks in property right because you know, I could take on refurbishment. It does cost a lot more than I thought. I could fall out with a builder. I can have tenants that don't pay, which I've had, you know, and I've had tenants sectioned under the Mental Health Act, you know, and uh, all sorts of dramas. So um, you've got to accept some risk and you are running a business. But again, I think as long as you're buying well, you're buying sensibly, you're adding value, creating that equity on day one, it's pretty risk averse. Um, and, you know, single lets are never going to go away, right? Two, three bedroom houses that appeal to couples young families those are always going to be in high demand i don't see the government heavily regulating those as a, as a result whereas we've seen over the years especially hmos is a good example licensing council tax banding uh you know amenity standards minimum room sizes all that sort of thing and we see that coming now with, with holiday lets right let's talk about holiday lets are going to need planning permission um whereas you don't see people saying oh well you know Two bed houses let to families, you know, <laughs> let, let's regulate those out of existence. I, I just don't see that happening. So for me, it, it's 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 as risk averse as you can get in property. Um, but you, you've got to accept you are taking on risk because you're looking for a turnover and above when I'm getting a bank savings rate. 
Yeah. And when you're looking for a certain return, do you have, uh, you know, like a range in mind that you won't go below? Like, how does it how does it have to stack for you in order to be a good deal? What's a good deal for you? Yeah. And that's changed over time, to be honest. So I think when you're at the start of your journey, uh, you've got to accept more risk in the sense that you might look for a lower return because you're looking to perhaps maximize your leverage, for example, you're looking to refinance money back out of the deal to go again. Um, so what I would have accepted in the beginning is much different to now. So back then I used to look for nothing dramatic, you know, a kind of gross yield of around 7% is what I would look for as a kind of initial marker point. Um, you know, which did mean buying at a discount. I, you know, I've invested predominantly down south and in London, so that did mean, you know, looking for for deals even just to get a kind of 7% yield, knowing that that's going to improve over time. That's the other beauty about long-term sort of set and forget investing is I don't need to be quite so focused on my cash flow today because I know in 10 years' time, generally rents will follow wage inflation. And again, we see that at the moment, right? The last couple of years have been a great time for increasing rents. You know, I've increased my rents considerably across my portfolio in the last couple of years, but over 30,000 per year, I've put them up by. And so that, that again, that, that de-risks you because as long as you're not refinancing every opportunity, which, you know, I don't actually believe in, I think you should just let your equity grow, to be honest, because it, it builds in that safety factor. So I, you know, one of the key metrics I look at is is what I call yield on debt across the whole portfolio. So actually, what is my return? For, forget the equity. Equity is great, and that that will come into play, you know, at kind of retirement stage. But you can't spend your equity on a day to day basis, right? So what I look at is my yield on debt figure. So that is what return am I getting on my outstanding debt level, i.e., my mortgages. Um, and you'll just see that creep up over time because your mortgage will stay fixed and your rents will increase. So you might see all your gross yield going down because your equity is increasing, but actually your yield on your debt is going up. And that 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 buys you a safety factor. It it de-risks the portfolio. Um, you know, and again, that that's come into play today where we've got interest rates, uh, mortgage rates going through the roof. Um so, you know, if you've remortgaged heavily, you you could be you could be in, in in considerable trouble. Whereas if you've left your debt where it is, you know, the yield on debt on my portfolio is now basically I could withstand the Bank of England interest rate of about 10 percent before, you know, I start I start to worry. So that builds safety again going forward. So um, yeah. that's a bit of a long winded way of saying, you know, I would look for probably about a 7 percent gross yield if I was starting out. But these days, you know, I don't really need to buy any more property I need. I need less mortgages, so I'm much, much more fussy about what I buy these days. And uh, why do you look at the deals in terms of uh, yield rather than an ROI? Most people talk about return on investments um, when they. Oh well, you're going to get me on my soapbox now. So ROI, <laughs> ROI is great. I mean, gross yield really is just just a filter. I mean, obviously, I do more than that. That's just an initial kind of. You know, as you will know yourself, when you're finding good deals is is difficult. You need a very quick and efficient sort of filtering process. And Growth Shield is, is an easy way to kind of do that. But there's more to it because, you know, what value can I add? And if I add that value, what does that do to the rent? Does that increase the yield, et cetera? But ROI is a factor, but you can't spend your ROI. And the more you refinance out of the property and the higher your ROI is, the kind of more meaningless it gets because it's ignoring risk. So, you know... I'm going to get a bit nerdy now because I'm a mathematician, but people talk about, you know, I've got all my money back out, 
So I've got infinite ROI. Right, that is one of my biggest bugbears in property. And you'll see this everywhere, right? In magazines, on podcasts, you know, blog articles, forums, you name it. And, you know, number one, infinity is a concept, right? It's, it's not a number. Um, and I've yet to see anyone with an infinite ROI, you know, show me an infinite amount of money in their bank account. Or, you know, a BBC News flash that says Lloyd Bank banking system crashed because a property investor got an infinite ROI and, you know, there's not enough zeros on the screen to, to to manage it so you know what does that actually mean it means you've got all your money back out which, which might be great but you've increased your risk massively because you you will now have lower equity uh you have higher exposure to interest rates your cash flow will be lower so you know you can say people tend to see ROIs as kind of you know gold standard to hit especially this ROI equals infinite but all that means is you've got all your cash back out um, whereas if I'd left cash in, so if you and I did identical deals and you had a, you know, this ROI, I'm doing air quotes here, ROI uh, it, that's infinite because you've got all your money back out. Um, but we did an identical deal and I, I didn't do that. You know, maybe I just remortgaged enough to, I don't know, get the deposit for, for my next place. And I left a chunk of cash in and my ROI is, and let's, let's make up a number 20%. You know, who's, who's, who's done a better deal? And the answer is neither of us, because if it's an identical investment and it's an identical property with identical rents and so on, we've got the same cash flow. You know, we've got the same rent coming in. We've got the same equity in the property. We've added the same value. Um, you've just got all your money back out, which is great. But, you know, you'll have lower cash flow than me. You've got a higher exposure to mortgage rates than me. You might have more problems refinancing if mortgage rates are high because you might fail the stress test than me. Um, equally, I've got less cash to go into the next deal. So. ROI is great, but it 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 it's it's not everything um, because it it ignores the risk that's inherent in leveraging to the max, um, which again we're we're seeing now. You know, if you've leveraged absolutely to the max and you're coming to refinance, you could find yourself in 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 quite a lot of deep water. And so the idea, I suppose, is that you take that money and then you reinvest it in another deal, so actually you can get more cash flow more equity from another deal um whereas you're keeping in your scenario you're keeping that locked in so you don't have the opportunity to make that money work even harder for you on another deal well not quite what i would say is i've got no problem and i've done this i've got no problem with refinancing you know some money back out back out of the deal especially in the early days because like you say you're 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 trying to grow and you're going to run out of money sooner sooner rather than later if, if you do that so refinancing buying it at a discount adding value and then refinancing sensibly to get your working capital back out i've got no problem with that what i've got a problem with is then you know refinancing every five years down the line um and so that, to the point where you will have an ROI of infinite because you'll eventually get all your money back out and you, you think you're you think you're doing great but actually you've just put yourself in a more risky position and don't forget actually if you and not many people talk about this if you refinance um above what you paid for the property and and the property is in your personal name i know a lot of people buying limited companies these days but if it is in your personal name and you refinance above the uh purchase price you cannot offset any of that against your um against your revenue and equally the other thing you'd be wary of if you're looking to sell further down the line to get that lump sum or to pay down the mortgages on other properties which is going to be my strategy your capital gains again if it's in your personal name but true with corporation tax and limited company that is due uh 
on the current value minus the value at which that property became a rental property. Um, so at the point you bought it. So if you refinanced again above the purchase price, you're going to have a large capital gains tax. And in a worst case scenario, you'll actually owe more in tax than you actually made in profit, if that makes sense. And, you know, you'll find yourself in a position where you can't sell. So this whole, you know, ROI equals infinite thing is 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 great in theory, but, you know, the practicalities are, are very different, I think. So just keep the equity in as a for peace of mind for, um, you know, a buffer, like, a, you know, just in case things change. And then uh, and then what? And then what happens when you get to retire? You've got all this equity locked in that you haven't taken out. Yeah, well, then you've got lots of lots of options, right? So if you haven't aggressively remortgaged over the years, then your cash flow is probably very, very good. Um, so. You know, like I said, at the start, you might be in a position to go down to a three day working week. You might be in a position to take longer gaps between jobs. Um, or what I plan to do is you can, you know, if you've amassed a big enough portfolio, you can sell some of that, you know, bank the cash you gain and pay down the mortgages on the others. Because I think the long term gain, certainly for me, is to end up with, you know, I never look to grow the biggest portfolio. What I really want is the minimum number of properties that are going to give me a comfortable retirement that are mortgage free. So that's my long term aim. And these days with, with rent inflation over the years, you know, you don't, especially investing down south, you don't actually need that many properties to have quite a comfortable uh, retirement. If, you know, I don't know what the average rent is. I, I seem to remember reading outside of London, I think it's passed through a thousand pounds a month for the first time. So you know, if each property is netting 12,000 without a mortgage, how many of those do you need to have a comfortable retirement? Especially, you know, if you had on a state pension and any other investments or workplace pensions you've been investing into over the years, you don't need that many properties. Um, but for me, I don't want any mortgages because if I'm 70, 80 plus years old, you know, do I want to be refinancing, worried about interest rates, worried about paying a mortgage if the property is empty or whatever? And the answer is no. You know, I want the minimum number of properties. So I have the minimum amount of maintenance, tenant hassle, all the rest of it um, with zero mortgage. Um, that's my that's my end game. Yeah, you might need a few more properties if you're investing up north, I guess. <laughs> yeah, and you know that's that's another thing. People tempted by chasing the yield up north, um, but forgetting actually, I think the real power is is in the capital growth, and that that for me is 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 down south. And you know, I've seen that in in especially in London is is perhaps a classic example. If I was doing the sums the other day on a property, and uh, that was the second property I ever bought, so admittedly I've had that for you know what i don't know 17 odd years 15 years something like that so it's a long time but it's a good example so the rent's gone from about 900 at the time i, I forget exactly but it's about 900 a month to i'm getting 1500 a month today so you know that's pretty good right it's gone up 600 pounds that's what 66 percent increase in rent that's, that's pretty good but I bought that for 140,000. It wasn't deal of the century. It was actually a landlord selling up, funny enough. Um, I thought it's probably worth about 160 with a refurb. It was on the market for 150. I got it for 140. I mean, it's not, you know, by no means deal of the century. But you don't have to over the long term. This is my point. And I was just through an agent. I was nothing, didn't do anything clever there, um, except kept, keep an eye on the market. Um, yeah, so I bought that for 140 and you know today that's probably worth 425. So that's literally a kind of tripling 
of capital growth. Now, if I'd aggressively re refinanced that, I wouldn't have that equity saying it, but I haven't. I refinanced it once when I moved on uh, to get deposit for, for, for the next place I was going to buy, and that's it. Um, so the cash flow is very good because that's gone from 900 to 1500 and the equity is very good because I have, you know, my debt, you know, 140,000 at the time, that sounds peanut, right, for a flat in southwest London. But at the time, that was a lot of money. It's all relative. Uh, you know, and again, that's one I moved into and bought. So relative to my um, salary, that was a lot of money. Um, these days, that that would be peanuts, you know, 140,000. I mean, you know, it's just not going to happen again in my lifetime. So um Again, for me, it's the it's the capital growth, which I could have taken that money and gone up north and, you know, perhaps made more short term gain through the rent. But over the long term, you know, I, I can't see a, a place up north tripling in value quite so from already relatively high, you know, relatively high purchase point um, to, to those kind of numbers. Definitely. So it seems like there's a few um, let's let's call them games to play, if you like, where at the beginning for people who are starting out and they want to replace their uh, day job, their income from the day job, then they might be looking at one route where they are refinancing sort of earlier on in the game and um, uh, and getting those perhaps investing up north because they're getting the higher cash flow, but then switching to a different strategy of the longer term play. So I think it's, is it about understanding at what point is enough you know where you know you're in this game and where do you shift that strategy and that's obviously a personal question yeah. for everybody to answer on their own um some people just love the hustle of it and they just keep going they just keep buying and that's fair enough and that's different yeah. than thinking about it from a okay how much money do i need to live off when i want to retire so you mentioned before about you know, now you're in a different stage where you're looking to sell some properties to pay off other ones. And that's part of the strategy in this last kind of phase, if you like. So is there anything else that you think that you do or, or people might not necessarily have thought about if they're thinking of the retirement phase? Yeah, so I, th I think there's, there's there's a few phases that I've kind of gone through. So, you know, I was like everyone else in the beginning. I was keen to just get a portfolio. I had a very good day job, so that helped. I didn't need the money to live on. Um, so, you know, I was buying relatively aggressively. Uh, and then you kind of move into a sort of consolidation phase, which I'm kind of going through now. And that's really looking at your existing portfolio. And, you know, you've now got a lot of data points. So for a start, you can look back and you will always get some properties. I don't think it matters where you're buying, where for some reason or other, they're just kind of more hassle than than others, right? They just seem to have higher tenant turnover, more things go wrong. Um, so those are the properties I will look to trim, you know, sooner rather than later. And the second thing I, I'm looking at doing is uh, all the things you look at doing when you're buying a property, you can kind of do further down the line. So I've got some opportunities um, to do. Uh, in fact, that flat I just mentioned in London, the neighbours of uh recently done a sort of one bed to two bed flat conversion by kind of filling in the side return doing a small extension out the back rejigging the the internals and um turning that into a in from a one bed to a two bed flat so you know that's on my that's on my radar that is coming to the point probably in the next five years or so where that will probably need a refurbishment anyway so that you know that that might be the time to do it um and that's a good use of your capital right because it's a property already owned so i'm not paying extra stamp duty i'm not getting extra loan to do it i'll do it out cash etc um 
so you know that's an example i've got another property it's a quite a large three bed uh, it's got an integral garage again i've had tenants there for, for well probably about 12 years now so you know, i won't do anything till they move out but you know the garage is crying out to convert into a sort of downstairs ensuite bedroom turn it into a four bed you know i'll probably add another two three hundred pounds a month to to the rent for relatively low cost i mean okay cost of materials and stuff have, have gone up but I don't know, maybe a garage conversion is 15,000, but you know, that's a very good return on, on investment for, for that capital input. So there's all those sort of consolidation factors you can do. And if that pushes rents up, then that actually just means, well, you know, going back to my end goal, which is to have as few properties as possible that gives me a certain level of income. Well, now I kind of need fewer properties because I've just added added rental value to the ones I've got. So, you know, perhaps I can sell a few more and or maybe do that earlier so then i'll move into the kind of sell down phase you know that's definitely not now um certainly with the market as it is um but you know i will look at, at, at starting to trim my portfolio and paying down the mortgages and you know i look at a range of factors not not just a question of well which one's cash flow most it's you know which ones am i happy holding which ones give me the the, the least hassle um i will apart from maybe the london ones i would probably sell all my flats because you know, as you go through this this property game, you realise that service charges only ever go one way, and that's up. Uh, your leases are reducing, um, and you know there's always hassles with managing managing agents and Section Twenty notices and all, all that malarkey. So I'll probably trim some of the flats as well. So that's my kind of end game. Oh, okay. And what about the interest rates then? So, are you someone who fixed them all at ten years when they were really low? Yeah, that, yeah. I mean that. That was a great move. <laughs> I'm so gutted I didn't do that. <laughs> well, I'm the same. I didn't do it either. So, you know, again, this is where I'm grateful that I haven't aggressively refinanced over okay. the years. That makes me feel better. <laughs> I, I'm getting bitten. Because, again, I was buying before buying in a limited company was, was a yeah. thing. And I know you can incorporate in a limited company, but then I think you've got to, you know, prove that you spend 20 hours a week on your property business you know and I've deliberately set things up where I don't spend 20 you know I can't do anything worse than spending 20 hours a week on it to be perfectly honest so um I just kind of left it be um you know so that, that's just just part of the cost of doing business I suppose regulation comes along you have to deal with it um yeah I mean it's a bit of a perfect storm interest rates are going up I've just had to refinance three off of uh, five-year fixed rates onto I've gone on to new two-year fixed rates and I hope that interest rates will be lower in two years yeah those mortgages have literally doubled um, but they're all still cash flowing because I haven't aggressively refinanced um, you know and I'm pleased I haven't you know sometimes you think well I could you know there's all that kind of equity sat there and you know because it's a loan it's debt it's tax-free um, but you know now, now I'm glad I haven't so again that's why I think your long-term strategy should be to to remove the risk of interest rates because you know when we're right only have to go back what two years covid hit interest rates went down to 0.1 percent you know who could have predicted two years later we, we we'd be where we at right it's, it's great with hindsight well you could argue covid with the you know that increase in pumping capital and support into the system was always going to result in inflation in the end and the typical way of combating inflation is raising interest rates but you know all that's easy with hindsight so again my my long-term plan is to get rid of any interest rate risk whatsoever yeah it's interesting and i hope people are like really picking up on what we're talking about here so we, i um the last podcast 
uh, a couple of weeks ago was with Simon Zucci and he was saying the same thing about um, you know, making sure that you stack the deals well. And, you know, I obviously trained with Simon Zucci years ago and he always said to stack the deals at 6%, which is what I did do. So now I'm the same as you. I've got a handful coming out of those fixed mm. uh, rates into the trackers and they've doubled, but uh, but they still cash flow really well. Yeah. And there's still the equity in. So it's it, it's a balance, isn't it, between you know how risk averse can you be how much do you need the um the cash now i think the like for me personally once i had bought back my time from the day job suddenly the pressure was off so there was a big race yeah. at the beginning to get out of the day job and uh, i have the highest cash flowing properties that i could find 10 bed hmos 7 bed hmos and you know and all this kind of thing but um but actually what as soon as i was able to leave the day job and I had all this time back. It's like, okay, right now let's go through a bit more consolidation. Let's, you know, look at different types of deals. You don't have to do the deals. And it's interesting what you said before, because I feel like I am a little bit of the opposite of you. So I did all of the high cash flowing stuff at the beginning. And now I'm kind of like, well, okay, it's, it doesn't have to make as much money as it did back then because I want an easier life. So I don't want the hassle of having, you know, exactly. lots of tenants and, uh, and, and all of that kind of business set up, if you like. Now the single lets are more where I'm going, whereas it sounds like for you it was the opposite. You're looking for a higher return now because, well, you know, you don't need to. Um, so, yeah. So yeah. I, I still do deals. Um, so, but you know, I can get the higher return much easier by, you know, rejigging my current portfolio, basically, yeah. and doing those one to two bed flat conversions or three to four bed house conversions. Um, you know, I will still do buy to sells, not, not not now in the current market, but, you know, I will still do that sort of thing. Um, you know, I've done joint ventures, private investor finance. And the other thing I, I have dipped my toe in the water at is, is mixed use properties, which again, I think a lot of investors don't really think about. So, you know, that's where you've got, you buy a freehold property and you'll have a commercial you know shop retail area downstairs and you know one or two flats above and that's a kind of mini niche that I don't think too many investors look at in fact when I speak to agents they say that there's kind of a sweet spot where true commercial investors tend to have very deep pockets and they just want the commercial stuff so that they're off buying warehouses that they let to Amazon you know where, where you need deep pockets um or you know shopping malls and that sort of thing and they're not interested in the residential piece and they talk to residential investors and they generally shy away from the commercial place because, you know, it's a whole different ball game. It's different leases, you know, different sort of um, rules and regs around it. So they kind of shy away from that. So this kind of, you know, so true commercial investors are kind of at least 500,000 plus, if not a million pound plus. And residential investors don't want anything to do with commercial. So there's kind of sweet spot in the middle around, you know, depending on where you're buying around the sort of 250 to 500 mark, which no one's really looking at. Um, okay. I actually did a joint venture with a guy and we bought a um, mixed use property um, and we were literally the only, I can't, I'm trying to remember the figures off the top of my head. I can't remember what it was on for, but we made a relatively low offer and he said, no way. And we said, fine, we'll leave it with you. And then three weeks later, he come back and said, yeah, okay, fine. So we must've been the only buyers in town. And the agent said, you know, there are very few people looking at this space, um, but actually it's not too different from a single let it, it's you know this is yep. a, a a retail shop downstairs and a two-bedroom flat above so it's just 
it's like having two flats in one building, except the commercial is even more hands off because, you know, it's all FRI, fully repairing, insuring leases, um, upward only rent reviews, blah, 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 tenants in, you know, responsible for the maintenance and, and so on. So that's even more hands free. So, you know, that's where I would if, if I was still buying aggressively, I'd probably look down that route because the yields are better and you can get some 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 decent deals and the retail you know retail market is is dying a bit on the high street but yeah we've got a tattoo artist in there right amazon you want tenants that amazon can't replace so you know tattoo artists coffee shops that sort of thing yeah uh, those are all those are never going anywhere and you kind of want a sweet spot where the rent isn't too expensive so it's actually quite attractive to a wide range of sort of sole traders that might be looking at starting up a hairdressing salon or a tattoo shop or a coffee shop so around the sort of five six hundred pound a month mark is is I think sweet spots are probably quite a lot of traders. And then you've always got value add. Again, with commercial, you know, I know people that, especially if it's not resi above, you know, permitted developments, right? So you can convert to flats or uh, I've got a friend at the moment, you know, converting the rear of commercial to um, to a flat. You've got all those elements of adding value as well. So, you know, that's where I would look rather than going down to the kind of intensification of use as i like to call it where you know you're turning a three bed into a six bed hmo with all the regs and hassle that that can come with that yeah definitely i've got one of those um uh, commercial to resi as well it's one of our best performing properties yeah. bought it for sixty thousand. wow um, i know that? <laughs> six zero you heard me right sixty thousand, and it's a hairdresser's so on yeah. the ground floor she pays 450 one bed flat above 150 again and they just take over um so that's 600 uh, a month on a 60,000 investment i mean you know you do that all day long right that's all day long and that one we brought a private investor in so we didn't you know we didn't go down the mortgage route we had a private investor to be the mortgage host nice and easy because at that rate at that at those uh, purchase prices you can offer someone first charge for yeah. a relatively you know small amount of money uh, you know, actually, that's a good point. When you're looking for investor finance, it, it, it again, you're not asking for five hundred thousand, right, to do a deal. It's much easier to raise sixty thousand, especially with the first charge over a freehold property, and it is trying to raise five hundred thousand. Um, yeah, they're quite deal. rare, I think, offering that kind of money for first charges. Yeah, yeah. I agree. Yeah, that's cracking that's deal. Nice. So I do that all day long rather than HMO, to be honest. <laughs> yeah, same, same now. It's a good type of mix, you know, but but I always say I'm I'm happy with the diversification of my portfolio. I've yeah. got some HMOs, got some um single lets, this one commercial, blocks of flats, and it's it, you know, I like that gives me peace of mind. Yeah. The fact that they're in different locations, different tenant profiles, some are, you know, um on the cancel the lha rates some of them are professionals and, and it's fine it's nice to have that mix yeah um but yeah so tell us anyway about this book that you're writing at the moment and oh, yes where where are you up to with it what's what's going on in the book yeah so the book's come about i was kind of a that was actually a lockdown sort of thought i was going to um yeah lockdown happened we're all sat at home right wondering what to do um, luckily my portfolio survived COVID all the rents kept getting paid so I think what should I do I know I'll write a book um, a non-fiction book I don't think I'm I'm a storyteller as such um, so I thought I'd write a, a book on property and then you know that's, that's kind of sat on the back burner for a few years but I, I'm finally going to push it forward so what I've really tried to do is distill 
20 years of experience um, down to a book. So, you know, my working title is Part-Time Properties, Full-Time Profits, uh, a four-part strategy to building wealth through through property for, for busy professionals. And it's really, there's kind of four key hurdles, right? So there's, there's, there's finding the right property deals, um, again, sticking to my two golden rules. There's making your working capital go further, as, as we've discussed. So, you know, what, what most people call BRR, right? Buy, refurbish, refinance. Um, you know, one to two bed flat conversions, that sort of thing. Hurdle three is sort of managing the properties and the tenants, which again, people don't really talk about, but actually that's where your money is because, you know, if you're not looking after the property, if you're not getting the right tenants, if you're not taking care of it, you're either going to get bad tenants, you're going to get dilapidated properties, you're going to get tenants that don't pay. Um, so, you know, I think that's a crucial element. And to be honest, for, for most people, that's kind of enough. If, if you've got a good day job and um, you can save heavily and so on, you're happy with your day job, then as long as you can source deals, add value, refinance, manage them well, then, you know, rinse and repeat, basically. But then, you know, the fourth hurdle, which we've all faced, which is running out of money. Um, so that's about how to find, attract and use private investor finance, how to joint, do joint venture deals and you know, leverage someone else's capital and experience as well. So putting all that together in a kind of, you know, and it, it's not, uh, you know, I'm not going to leave key parts out and say, you know, to get the secret sauce, you've got to, you know, pay this. It, it's it's going to be kind of warts and all. I'll put everything into the book. So, yeah, that's what I'm working on. And that's all based around my what I've called the retirement accelerator property system. I kind of retirement accelerator rather than retire early because, you know, I think if you're happy in your day job, then stick at it. It's much easier to do property if you've got a day job because you can save money, not reliant on the income. It's easier to get financing. You're de-risking issues around not getting rent and so on. And, you know, I would say if you really don't enjoy your day job, then, you know, find a day job that, that, that you do enjoy and try and build a property portfolio along with it. But, Bear in mind that property gets you to retirement quicker, or at least gives you the flexibility in the future that, you know, you can go down, like I said, to a three or four day week. So, yeah, it's hard work writing a book, but, you know, I'm going to stick with it because it's been it's been on the to do list for too long. So, yeah, work in progress. Watch this space. Right. Well, we look forward to finding out more. So we'll hold you to account there. <laughs> Thank you. OK. <laughs> Um, we will let everybody know once you've got your book released and published and um, and people can find out more. Um, tell us about where people can go to find out about yourself. And I know you do your own training and uh, mentorship for, for anyone who's interested in working with you. Yeah, I do. So I do training based on those kind of four four part strategy that, that I just spoke about that I will turn into a book. Um, but I also look after smarterpropertyinvesting.com. That, that's my website. So you can go there. Um, you can send me a message if you want to send me a message. Happy to have a call with anyone, you know, no selling. Happy to chat about property all day, as you can tell. So happy to have a chat about anything property related with anyone. Uh, if you go there, you can also sign up for my pre uh, free property investment starter guide, um, which will just give you some sort of tips on where you should be focused if, if you're just at kind of the start of your journey. Um, and if you do sign up and, and grab my freebie, then you'll go onto my uh, newsletter list and I do a five bullet Friday email where it's just short and concise, five, literally five bullets of what's going on in the property world, anything amusing I've come across, any personal anecdotes and so on, any deals I might be working on myself. So, you know, sign up for that. Amazing. I didn't know you did that one, so I'll be signing up for that. <laughs> okay, good. <laughs> look forward to it um it's good to you know hear what other people in the industry are 
uh, are seeing and um, good to have your finger on the pulse of what's going on as well. So that's great. Well, thank you so much for your time, Mark. It's been absolutely delightful as always. No really it. informative. Thank you very much um, for having me on. Thank you. All right. Well, for everyone else who is not yet a subscriber to the magazine, Wycombe Magazine, click the link in the show notes for your free 30-day trial. And we'll see you next time, guys. Thanks. Bye-bye. Thank bye. you. Bye-bye.